reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 8. In that blue Bible, it's page 894. The Gospel according to John, chapter 8. This is a very intense passage because the temperature gets hotter as the passage, as the chapter moves on, and it comes to the point later where finally the religious elites will say of Jesus that he was a child of fornication. He was born out of an illicit relationship. That's the accusation at the end. So you know what we're about to read is the beginning of the growing heat and intensity. And you can pick it up as we read these verses, 25 through 30. But what I want you to see and listen for is watch for how Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who is equal in power and glory with the Father, submits himself to the Father, is humble before the Father, and listens to the Father. John chapter 8, verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And as He was saying these things, many believed in Him. May many believe in Him this day. And now we turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 34 and 35. Yes, we will do both. So on page 385, I'm going to read part of it now and the rest we'll pick up as we work our way through the sermon. But 2 Chronicles 34, for those of you who are visiting, we're doing a series through 1 and 2 Chronicles. We're almost to the end. The series is called Reclaim, Revive, Reform, Return. And this is where we are now. So here is... Manasseh has reigned for 55 years. It was a rotten, reeking, stinky reign. It was the longest reign in all of Judah. Except for that little moment of change in his life at the end. That's the overarching theme of his reign. And then his son reigns for two more years, continuing his father's rotten program. And then comes chapter 34, verse 1. And you're going to notice how old Josiah is when he begins to reign. So you're going to have to do the math as we work through. It'll be very interesting. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years. So he reigned until he was 39 years old in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Tells you that in the Hebrew it's God's personal name, Yahweh. He did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh and walked in the days of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, when he's 16, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, when he's 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places. So he begins to take away all of the fertility shrines, the Asherim, and all that went with that, and takes away all of the competitors and chops them down and tears them to pieces. In fact, verse 5, he also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. 
And in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim, up there in that theologically, morally, socially, ethically liberal portion of God's realm, even up there in Manasseh and Ephraim and in Simeon, as far as Naphtali, way out to the extremes, all their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the Asherim and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem and then picks up at verse 8 in his 18th year of his reign when he's 26 he begins to cleanse the temple. My friends, what I've read to you from the Gospel according to John chapter 8, and what I've read to you, and I'm going to read to you, and I'm going to summarize for you from 2 Chronicles 34 and 35, it is the endurance-giving word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Even now, Lord God, we ask, we ask for a heart like Josiah's, a heart that is tender and humble before you, a heart that is ready to hear and respond to your word, just like our Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So the sermon notes, for those of you who are visiting, uh, the sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide with the points there, lots of space to write notes and some questions this evening for those care groups that are meeting this evening that aren't going out caroling or whatever. I had a seminary professor named Derek Thomas, who was my homiletics professor, and he used to say in class, men, I pray to God that you'll never have to preach after a church meal because it's the hour of roast beef and unbelief. So Derek Thomas was speaking in my head just a minute ago. So. so hopefully we won't all fall asleep. It was a great brunch. It was a delightful brunch. My friend, a very simple question to ask is, what is it that pleases God? We could go down a whole list of things, but there's one specific trait that is characterized in these two chapters that is pronounced, very pronounced. And the one thing that pleases God is humility. And the reason why I know humility is what really pleases God because that's what God is himself. He is humble. You think of Philippians chapter 2, when, it, when Paul is laying out who Jesus is, he says, yeah, he, was, he is God. He didn't think that was a thing to be flaunted about. He is God. And yet, God took upon himself the form of a servant. And he humbled himself. Even in the incarnation, he humbled himself and became obedient, even to the point of death for us, for our salvation. But it's very interesting that the very centerpiece of the gospel is the humility of God. And so you know automatically what is one trait that God delights in, and it is humility. And we have in Josiah here in chapter 34 and 35, we have a beautiful picture of humility. Well over 57 years have elapsed since godly Hezekiah reigned. There's been Manasseh for 55 years and Ammon for 20 for two years, so well over 57 years have reigned since godly Hezekiah. And in that span of 57 years, it was a brutal time. It was a bloody time. It was a backsliding time. And then all of a sudden, here comes Josiah, chapter 34. And the heart of Josiah is clearly etched out for us and sketched out for us if you look down in chapter 34 to verse 27. 
please do keep your Bibles open and follow along. But in verse 27, God's own assessment of Josiah, your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard His words against this place and its inhabitants and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. I think that clearly echoes for us the heart of Josiah. Humble. Humble before the Lord, humble before the word of the Lord, but also humble before the people of the Lord. And that's the three points. And so verses 1 through 13 in chapter 34 is, shows how he is humble before the Lord. Notice at the very beginning, it's a very simple, personal revival and reformation with Josiah. Yeah, at eight years old, he's the king, but he doesn't have any power. He doesn't have really much influence. He has a position, but you know at eight years of age, everybody else is doing his business for him. You know what I mean? Right? So it's on that aspect. But it's at 16. Notice what happens when he's 16 years old. When he was yet a boy, as the scripture says, when I was 16, I would have chafed at that statement. But when he was still yet a boy at 16, what is he known to have done? He began to seek the God of David, his father. It was personal revival and reformation. At 16, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And then he publicly acts out upon his faith and his commitment when he's 20 years old. That's when you get down there in the next section, when he's in his 12th year of his reign, he began to purge Judah and so forth. When he is finally at the military age of service. Isn't that interesting? When he's 20, you didn't join the military in Judah and Israel until you were 20. When he's finally at the military age of service, he publicly acts upon his faith and his commitment. And so Josiah used his youth, at least since he was 16, may have been even before then, but at 16 he began to seek the Lord. He used his youth to prepare himself for the day when he would be at liberty to operate in his manhood, and it was a godly, God-fearing, God-honoring manhood. And as soon as it was legitimately possible, he then took this revival and reformation that was his own, and he began to spread the revival and reformation in his own culture as king, and he did so by alleviating all of the confusing, competing voices so that he could continue to seek God and invite all the rest of God's people into seeking God. He removes all of the competing voices. He takes out all the Asherim, which are fertility symbols and signs, shuts down all the other shrines and all of that. He's, he's putting away all the obstacles. And that makes me stop. And think about how important this was for Josiah. He removed obstacles in his way as he sought to seek God. And so I ask you this question, what are some of the hardest obstacles for you to overcome in your life that make it hard for you to seek God? There's actually things for you to do. You need to actually remove those obstacles. You don't want to be like the guy I had sit before me 20 years ago and say, well, if God really wants me to do this, he'll have to work a miracle. He'll have to inspire me. He'll have to inflame me. No, 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 no. 
You've already been empowered. If you belong to Jesus, you've already been empowered. You have an obligation to take steps to remove those obstacles to you seeking God. In fact, the Apostle Paul encourages young Pastor Timothy to that very thing. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. 2 Timothy 2, if you're writing notes, 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. Paul says, Timothy, flee also youthful lusts. Notice the first step here. What's he supposed to do? Flee. Flee those youthful lusts. What are youthful lusts? Yeah, whatever. Right? They're not all sexual. There's all kinds of youthful lusts. And when you're 62, you still have a few. Right? So flee also youthful lusts. But then the next part. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So the next part of this is, here's removing the obstacles. To flee, to run away from this, and to actually run somewhere. Y'all picking this up? Run away and run somewhere. And the somewhere is righteousness, peace, uh, faith, and joy, etc. That's the direction. But then Paul doesn't leave Timothy to do it on his own devices. He goes on to say, flee also youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Did y'all hear that? Along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You don't do it on your own. Right? You need support. You need others who are running in the same direction. Anybody ever done any cross-country racing? You know how fun it is to be out there all by yourself? Only a few people can do it on their own. Everybody else needs to be like in the middle of the pack or have the pack chasing them or the, the pack you know, in front of them. But they need people around them. That's what Paul says. Here's how we're, part of the way we remove the obstacles is that we run away from and we run toward these things, but we don't do it alone. We do it along with others who call on the Lord out of a pure heart, which is exactly what Josiah is doing. As he takes this revival and reformation and begins to spread it socially, he is calling in others of God's people to run that race with him. Now, just as a side thought, you know, it would be, thinking about 2 Timothy 2.22 and also Josiah, it would actually be very beneficial for young Christians, younger Christians, maybe to start grabbing some of these other older believers and saying, how did you run the race when you were my age? What were some of the obstacles you faced in your day? And how did you deal with that? And it'd be very fitting for us, even as older believers, to turn around and talk to our younger brothers and sisters and say, you know, I know this sounds like maybe I'm being an old person here, but when I was your age, we had these obstacles. I'm not sure how what your obstacles you're dealing with, but here's what we did when we ran the race as we overcame these obstacles. Flee youthful lusts, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those, whatever age, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So Josiah is humble. He's humble before the Lord. He submits him. He wants him. He longs for him. And he wants to be close to him. He seeks him. There's a humility in that statement. But not only is Josiah humble before the Lord, but notice he is humble also before the word of the Lord. And so as you move on down through the passage, you begin to notice starting at verse 8 in this 26th year of his reign. Right? That's what it says. The 18th year of his reign. I'm sorry. When he's 26 years old, it's the 18th year of his reign. He begins to cleanse the land and he begins to cleanse the temple. 
if you remember Hezekiah, I mean, sorry, not Hezekiah, but if you remember his grandfather Manasseh and his daddy Amon, you realize why he has to spend some time cleaning the temple. Because his grandpa and his daddy were busy destroying and desecrating the temple. You got it? So now he actually calls the priests to come in and start purging and cleansing the temple, rebuilding it and so forth. And they're being funded. This is very interesting. They're being funded by all the local believers, but also, down in verse 9, also that money which was collected from the progressively, the, the morally, socially, theologically, politically liberal realm of God's kingdom, Manasseh and Ephraim, and then all the remnant of Israel, from all Judah and Benjamin, from all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, everybody's pouring into the purging and the cleansing of the temple. While the priests are cleansing the temple, something happens. It's down there when you get to about verse 14. Hilkiah the priest, as they're rummaging through and cleaning all the rubbish, rubbish up and moving it out, Hilkiah the priest, it says, found the book of the law of the Lord, of Yahweh, given from Moses. Wow, what a weird world to live in. Where it's phenomenal. We finally found a Bible. We found a Bible. Whoa! That would be a tough world to live in. They find the book of the law of God through Moses. Now, what was that book of the law? Well, it could have been Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Probably not likely because at that time, you remember, everything is written on animal skins, right? And that's real thick. And so each book would have been its own scroll. The likelihood is that he finds Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy on a scroll. And in the book of Deuteronomy, there are all these wonderful promises for God's people. Look, I gave you this law for your good so that you can thrive in goodness. And so remember, I'm the God who set you free from the house of Egypt, from the land of bondage. And so I've set it up. Here's how free people live. And look what happens as you live in the liberty that I've given you and enjoy the life that I bestow upon you and thrive in the love that I pour out upon you. Look what happens. And there's all these promises. It's called covenant blessings. But then in that book, it also goes on to say, but if you turn your back to life, liberty, and love, then all that's left is a train wreck. And those are called covenant curses. All of that would have been in the book that Hilkiah found. So Hilkiah finds it, and he goes to the chief of state, or whatever his real role was, to Shaphan, and he says, I found a book of the law in the house of Yahweh. And Shaphan, it says, goes on to say, takes the book to the king, to King Josiah, and he gives him a wonderful report about how the temple is being remodeled. And then down at verse 18, uh, he goes on to say, um, and also Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. I find it funny he just says a book, right? And then he begins to read it. And Shaphan read from it before the king. And notice Josiah's response. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. It's a sign, an outward visual sign of his own remorse. It's a way of him being humble to the word. He doesn't double up his fist and say, how dare you do what you say you're going to do. He rips his robe in humble submission to the word. What Yahweh has said is right. That's the, the picture of him ripping his robe, what that means. And so then, 
he gathers together some of his fellow, his, his uh, sub-leaders, Hilkiah, Ahikam, uh, Abdon, and Shaphan, uh, and, and Isaiah, and he sends them, he says, go inquire of the Lord. Is this judgment we're reading about in Deuteronomy, is it going to happen? Are we beyond repair? And so they go, verse 22, and they find hold of the prophetess, and they inquire of the Lord through her. They say, this king has sent us to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord's response is very simple. Verse 24 through 25, it's basically this. Yep, there ain't no turning back. My judgment is coming. There's no stopping it. No stopping it. It is coming. Not a thing you can do, Josiah. Not a thing you can do, Judah. Not a thing you can do, people of God. It's coming. It is well deserved. And then comes verse 26. God goes on to say, But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of Yahweh, thus shall you say to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, regarding the words that, I have heard, that you have heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God when he, you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and have wept before me. I have also heard you, declares Yahweh. Behold, I will gather you. Notice his promise. I will gather you to your fathers. You shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Well, what would that peace look like? It's the rest of the verse. Your eyes shall not see all the distress that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. That's him being gathered to his fathers in peace. He will not see the judgment in his own days. Hakiah is humble before the, 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 the word of the Lord. Notice he's hungry. He's not angry at what the word of God says, as I have seen people do on occasion. My God wouldn't do that. I've seen it. I've heard it. Josiah is humble before the word of God. He's hungry for it. And that's verse 19 and verse 27. Now, as I've already mentioned to you, the, the, the word of the Lord that came to him was filled with both covenant blessings and covenant curses. But that's what makes Josiah's response so phenomenal. Instead of him grabbing the scroll as it's being read, grabbing the tail of the scroll and pulling out his penknife and cutting it and throwing that that the word of the Lord in a fire like his son will do after he's dead. Did you hear that? Instead of him doing that like his son will do, just read Jeremiah 36. Instead of that, what does Josiah do? Josiah welcomes the word with both arms and a whole heart. And when does he do this? In his middle 20s. 26 years old. He is all on board. What the Lord says is righteous. And his humility before the word of the Lord will become a constant theme, even when you get to chapter 35. As you move on to chapter 35, you'll hear this refrain all the way through. Verse thir chapter 35, verse 6, he did according to the word of Yahweh by Moses. Or verse 12, as it is written in the law of Moses. Or verse 13, according to the rule. Or in the summary statement of his life, down in 35, verse 26, his good deeds according to what was written in the law of Moses. He was humble before the word of the Lord. And that, my friends, is the way forward for us as well. In the call to worship we heard from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul's thanksgiving for the Thessalonian Christians. 
And it was this Thanksgiving. And we also constantly thank God for this, that when you heard the word of God, which you received from us, you accepted it not as the word of man. You accepted it not as Jordan Peterson's high-dollar advice. You accepted it not as Wayne Dyer's advice. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. That's the way forward. Humbling ourselves before the Lord, or humbling ourselves before the word of the Lord. What the Lord says is right. And that's Josiah. And you see it clearly when he's 26. Humble before the Lord, and humble before his word. Then Josiah is humble before the people of the Lord. And that's chapter 34, verses 29 through 33. As you notice in chapter 29, verse, uh, chapter 34, verse 29 and following, you'll notice that Josiah now brings this revival reformation more fully into this, his community that he leads. And I find it interesting. Let me tell you why I find it interesting. Because if you read, you will notice Josiah is not bargaining with God. No, the Lord said, this judgment is coming and it is well-deserved. And so we're going to do what's right in spite of what's coming. We're going to do what's right in spite of what's coming. Why? Because he's humble before the Lord and he's humble before the word of the Lord. The problem is as humans, we love to bargain with God. We love to throw out our quid pro quo, my little bit of this, but your great big old that. Well, if I do what you say, Lord, surely you can prosper me. And then when a train wreck happens, how many people I've seen throw off their faith or what they, we thought was their faith because the, bad, the tough outcomes. Notice Josiah. We're going to do what's right no matter the outcomes. That's a beautiful statement, a beautiful concept. And that's what you see when you start looking at verse uh, 29 and the rest of it is the fact that he's humble before the Lord, before the word of the Lord, but he's also humble before the people of the Lord. And so he does everything in his legitimate power. That's an important statement. He does everything in his legitimate power as the king to lead God's people back toward the full experience and enjoyment of God. He brings them into a covenant renewal service even to the point where they have to listen to the whole word that he heard, the, all of that scroll that he listened to being read of the word of the Lord, and then acting upon it. It's kind of funny to me, if you look down at verse, in chapter 34, if you look down at verse 32, it says he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to join in it. And then at the end of verse of that verse, uh, verse 33, or the middle of it, it says, and he made all, he made all who were present in Jerusalem to serve Yahweh their God. He had to make them. Hmm. There was some resistance even. So he does everything in his legitimate power. And the reason why I use that phrase, is anybody in here the king of the United States of America? Is anybody in here, oh, just, except for Steve. Sorry, Steve, I didn't see you. Is anybody here the king of the state of Oklahoma? You and I have a very limited sphere of influence. Here I'm stealing a phrase from Paul in 2 Corinthians 10. I have a very limited sphere of influence. You're it. My family, most times. That was funny, come on. But this is it. 
I can't saunter into the state capitol and walk into the Senate chamber and demand that they repent and that they believe in Jesus and they pass laws believe in Jesus right now because I said so. I can't do it. It's not my authority. It's not legitimate for me to do that. You can't walk into the White House or to the federal capitol and demand that there be rural, uh, nationwide revival. You don't have that authority. You don't have that influence. We have a very limited sphere of influence. Most of us, it's really just our families and those we're around. It doesn't mean we shouldn't write letters and all that. We have a very limited sphere of influence. Josiah's was larger than any of ours, and so when he had, in his legitimate power, he led God's people back toward the full experience and enjoyment of God. That's the point I'm getting across. But as I said and already hinted at, it was a hard road to hoe because not the people of God were really not with him. The people of God were not with him. Not only do you have to make them do these things, you get down to the very end of verse, the last verse of chapter 34, you'll notice that there's a very loud hint that it was not long-lasting. It says, all his days they did not turn away from following Yahweh, the God of their fathers. How long did they not turn away? All his days. Hint, hint, wink, wink, elbow, bud, nudge, right? It was limited because they were not on board with him. In fact, Josiah, the prophet who is prophesying during this time, will say in Jeremiah 25, and verse, uh, verse 3, he'll say, I've been, I have been, been working at this thing, being God's prophet to you for 23 years back in the 13th year of Josiah. From then on, I have spoken to you persistently the word of the Lord, and you will not listen. So even from Jeremiah, we hear, oh, they were not on board. And then next Sunday morning, before Christmas Eve, in the morning... We're going to finish this series in Jeremiah 36. I mean, Jeremiah. 2 Chronicles 36. I'll figure out where I live in a little bit. Hold on. In 2 Chronicles 36, you will see how speedily the people of God throw off any allegiance to God. This was short-lived. The people were not on board. And yet, Josiah continued, even with the resistance he continued to lead and love and long for bone-deep revival and reformation in their homes and in their hearts and with their hands. In fact, all of chapter 35, or most of 35, verse 1 through, 30, uh, through 19, recounts how he led the way. He led the way to renewing and restoring that Old Testament uh, festival of God's redemption, the Passover, renewing and restoring it on the first, uh, first month of the year, on the 14th day of the year, in the way that God had said to do it. Isn't that interesting? He takes them, even when they're resisted, He takes them to the Gospel. The Passover supper was the Gospel. You go under the blood of the Lamb that died for you. And you eat this bread and you drink this wine remembering that God has rescued you. Right? He takes them to the Gospel. Score on him. Good job. Because he wants this to become bone deep and long lasting. And it doesn't. It doesn't take root. That's when you get to chapter 36. And your heart breaks. 
So, my friends, the end of Josiah's life comes, the rest of chapter 35, in his 39th year, God does what he had promised. Josiah dies, being a little stubborn, by the way, not being very attentive to the situation he was in, and dies at 39 and is and is taken in peace to be with his fathers because he will not see the destruction of the southern realm of God's kingdom. What the reliable God says, the reliable God does. So my friends, for God's people of all generations, the message rings out loudly. Humble yourselves, like Josiah. A humility that happily draws near to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A humility that gladly hears the word of his covenant and embraces it. What Yahweh says, what the Lord says is right. A humility that seeks God even early on in your life. Or to put it in the words of the Apostle Paul that we read before the confession of sin, from Romans 12. Don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. There's something that A.W. Tozer wrote, and if you know anything about A.W. Tozer, he was kind of a revivalist in the middle of the 1900s. If you've ever read A.W. Tozer, you know what I'm about to say is true. He was pretty uh, ragged around the edges. Okay? He could be pretty sharp and very ungracious at times. I love reading him, not because I want to be ungracious, but that's what he was. But I love reading. And I think he gets the sense of what we're being called upon to do in this passage. He wrote these words in a book called The Size of the Soul. One consequence of the failure to see clearly the true nature of revival is that we wait for years for some supernatural manifestation that never comes. Overlooking completely our own individual place in the desired awakening. We sit around and we look for some heavens to open up, for the earth to shake, for some move of the Spirit. When God has already moved, He's already saved you, you're already moved. And it begins right here where we're sitting. I love that prayer I gave to you some time ago. I hear it's supposed to be an old Chinese prayer that the Christians prayed before Chiang Kai-shek was run out of the country. And it is so potent. I have been using it every day, literally, since then. Revive your church, O Lord, beginning with me. Revive your church, O Lord, beginning with me. Further, my friends, especially because Josiah was a young fellow, so let me talk to the young folks. You who are younger, you who are young men, young women, teenagers, preteens, kids, 20-somethings, younger than me, anywhere in there, for, oh, up to 61, you're a young folk, right, you know? Josiah is firm proof that God loves having people your age come to him. He loves having you seek Him at a young age. He loves having you draw near to Him. 
and he will receive you. That's the promise that you see being referred and, and, and dealt with and lived out in 2 Chronicles 34 and 35. He will receive you. And so I say to you, don't sit there and say, well, I'm just too young to follow the Lord. No. No. Do it. Man, that sounds like a great commercial tagline. Just do it. Seek the Lord. And it will be found by you. Seek Him early. Seek Him young. Finally, my friends, in Josiah's compliant humility toward God and his complete submission to the Word of God, there is a divinely purposeful model, an intentionally crafted model in Josiah's life that pictures for us the greater one than Josiah, pictures for us the greater son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ. How do I know? I read to you John 8, 25 through 30. And what is Jesus doing? Submitting to the Father, hearing his word, doing what his Father says. Oh, Josiah is a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, the humble one. And Jesus then in his, is the one who humbled himself, gentle and lowly of heart. And, in his, and his humility and his lowliness are brilliantly displayed and fleshed out. How? In his becoming fully human. Even becoming a little bitty conceived little embryo. And Mother Mary's womb, and they're wriggling and kicking like soccer match, you know, and punching, and growing in the gestation. That's part of his humility for us and for our salvation. And then on that fateful day, that first Christmas day, he is birthed through the blood and the water and the pain of the birth canal. Our Lord's humility for us and for our salvation. And then he's laid all wiggly and slimy and helpless and vulnerable in a manger. The God of heaven becomes fully human. Fully human. Why did he do this? Well, for one, maybe the first verse we'll sing in the last hymn before we end the service this morning. God rest ye merry, gentlemen. But nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. Well, why? To save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Do you know this one? Do you know, have you humbled yourself before this humbled one? This humble one. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord God, for the story of Josiah that encourages us at so many different levels. It encourages us even when there's no possibility of changing outcomes, and yet humility and submission to you and your word will do the right thing in spite of the outcome. 
It encourages us that whatever age we are to see, begin to seek God. And you will draw us close. It encourages us that by through His humility, He displays and portrays for us even our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank You for Josiah's story. May we all submit ourselves in Jesus Christ to You and hear Your Word and embrace it with both arms and with a whole heart. In Jesus' name we pray.